My name is Jess. I serve as one of the leaders here at the Point Church at Federal Way. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of our recent sermons. I hope that as you listen to this sermon, that you feel seen and heard and known by the God who created the universe. Here at the Point Church, that's what we strive to do. Make people feel seen, heard, and known so they see, hear, and know Jesus. I hope over these next few minutes that you truly begin to feel him and see him and know him. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to visit our website, thepointfw.com. Be sure to note, the point has an E at the end. We'd love to get in contact with you and answer any questions you have. All right, let's dive into the message. Oh, hi, good evening. It's good to be here with you. Um, uh, as uh, uh, my friend Stephen uh, uh, told you earlier, my name is John, um, and I am married. Luckily, I, I, I tricked someone into marrying me. Um, and that's her over there. Her name's Carolyn. And we have three uh, kids downstairs. So if you hear any screams, um, you know, threats of wife being taken, that's probably our kids. 99% chance, okay? Um, three boys, okay? Seven, five, and two. So our house is chaos. Um, we are friends of the Point Church. We have known about you. You may not have known about, uh, about us, but we know about you. Um, we have been praying for you for a, a while, and um, we've been trying to support you from a distance. My wife and I, we live in Portland, but like, like Stephen said, um, we met years ago in the before times, before the pandemic, um, at an internship, and uh, you know, since moving here, we tried to let um, Stephen and Jessica and Sparrow come down to Portland for a quick little getaway at our house to leave the, maybe some chaos that might be here in their lives to come to our chaos. Um, that's typically how it works out, because our house is chaotic. Um, I'm also the guy that you bring in to preach to make your pastor look really good, okay, because uh, I'm a little rusty, okay, but just, just being honest, um, but yeah, you have a great pastor, and Stephen, I get to listen to his sermons, um, even from Portland, and man, it's, uh, I'm blessed whenever, every time I get a chance to hear a sermon from him, so um, yeah, we lived in Portland for one year, three months, 16 days, but I'm not really counting all that much. Um, the reason why I do count, though, is actually because I'm very grateful to be in the Pacific Northwest. Um, it, Texas is a great place to be from, um, but it's a great, uh, this is a great place to live, and we're very happy. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, um, you can turn to Genesis 45 um, on your phone and a physical Bible. Um, I actually brought mine up here. I'm probably not even going to open it, but because um, in the digital age and everything. But if you don't have one, I believe the words will be up on the screen. I'm going to try to preach through an entire chapter of Genesis. Um, so, uh, I, and just to warn you, I've been known to be a little long-winded. This is a long chapter um, to the point that some people have asked, is this a hostage situation? Like, what's going on? Like, are you, how long are you going to keep us here? So if you could, please pray for me to be, um, you know, uh, to, be, to speak well and uh, be, to articulate this message well. Um, or you can pray for God to drop lazy, boys recliner, lazy boy recliners from heaven um, to make just things a little bit more comfortable. Uh, don't, do, don't pray for that. We'll all fall asleep. Um, in all actuality, we're going to look at the first eight verses of chapter 45, and we're going to look at the last few chap- verses, uh, 25 through 28. Okay, Um, so let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to dig in here a little bit. God, thank you for bringing us here. God, thank you for your word, that we get to open it up and get to see who you are. We get to hear who you are. We get to know you better. And God, I ask that you would also illuminate to us who we are, 
in light of who you are. God, how you see us, how you're involved in our lives. And God, um, I just thank you, Lord, for everyone who's here in this room. You've brought them here for a reason. And God, I ask so that you would just speak to me today. In your mighty son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So as I said, we're coming to Genesis 45 today. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and put your finger there now. I have to give you a little a quick summary of how we got to chapter 45, okay? This is a long and detailed story in Scripture about the life of Joseph, okay? And there's a lot more that happened before we got to uh, chapter 45. We actually come today to the climax and the resolution of the story of Joseph. Um, so before we get there, I'm going to summarize what's happened before because I never want to assume that someone has heard the entire story before or that... Um, Everybody here has been raised up knowing the story of Joseph or anything in the Bible. I never want to assume that. So I always want to give a, at least a quick background, some background information about how we got to this point. So if you haven't heard about the story of Joseph, Joseph is a young kid um, at the, where the story kind of picks up with him. He's a young kid. His dad's name is Jacob. Um, you learned about him last week, I do believe. And, um, but Jacob, he loved Joseph and gave him a robe of many colors. You've probably heard of this robe, right? Um, there's actually a play going on um, in a town near ours uh, in Portland, in, in the Portland area, that, uh, about the story of Joseph. I didn't get a chance to go see it, but I wanted to just to see how accurately they depicted the, the, the robe of many colors. Okay, That's, that was my main issue. Um, I, I don't, I'm not a big fashion guy. You can ask my wife. I pick out clothes for our kids, and she's like, no, that's, that's not going to work. Okay, so I... Fashion jokes for me are just, is this how it is? I, I'm dressed like this, okay, guys? So um, one of the criteria, little rabbit trail here, one of the criteria for me becoming friends with Stephen was one that we sat at the same table at the, uh, at the residency, but also he was a conspicuously well-dressed man, also known as a dude. So that's, that's the actual definition. I looked it up once. So, um, so uh, but Joseph, he was gifted a robe of many colors. So Joseph also had some dreams that his brothers would one day bow down to him. And culturally, this was very taboo, okay? In fact, it was, like, horrible. You don't, you, this didn't happen. Older brothers didn't bow down to younger brothers, okay? He's, one, he's the youngest brother at this point. He also, he later on, have another younger brother named Benjamin. Um, but his older brothers hated him for this because he had a dream that they were going to bow down to him. And so his brothers get really mad about it, and they plan to kill him. They capture him. They plan to kill him. Big brother Reuben steps in and says, hey, let's just throw him in the pit for a while. And he secretly wanted to go rescue him. But Judah, another big brother, he thinks of an idea of how they can make some money off of this guy. And they say, hey, let's fabricate his death. Let's, let's uh, fabricate some evidence using that robe that he got. Um, and let's sell him into some slavers. He's going to be sold into slavery in, into Egypt. We'll make some money. Let's, we'll just move on with our lives, and we'll never bow down to him, right? And so um, they strip him of his robe of many colors. They do that very thing, um, and they go to Jacob, their father, and they say, hey, he's, you're, you're, I'm sorry, but Joseph died, and he was devastated, okay? Meanwhile, though, he's actually alive, being sold to a guy named Potiphar in Egypt. Um, Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Okay, and in Potiphar's house, Scripture says that the Lord was with Joseph, and everything he touched prospered. So Potiphar, of course, he recognizes this, and he says, hey, you're in charge of everything. Just don't touch my wife. But then the wife gets googly eyes for him and says, 
hey, Joseph, come here, and tries to seduce him. He literally runs away, and he loses another robe. The guy needs to buy a belt or a sash or something, right, to keep these things on, but literally runs away from evil, from the temptation. She's got the robe. Potiphar comes home, says, hey, look what, look what your, your, your top man tried to do to me, and so he gets thrown into prison. He's falsely accused, thrown into prison. While he's in prison, he meets two guys um, who have some dreams. One is the baker of Pharaoh, and the other one is the cupbearer of Pharaoh. Um, they both have dreams, and they're just distraught about these dreams. They can't figure out, figure out what they mean. And so uh, Joseph says, well, tell me the dreams. Tells, and he interprets them, and he says, hey, for the baker, you're going to die. And he dies. And to the cupbearer, he says, you're going to be restored to your position, and he's restored. He just says to the cupbearer, hey, just remember me whenever you get out of here, though, will you? Please just remember me whenever you get back up into Pharaoh, just remember me, because I'm not here, I'm, I'm here for, under wrong pretenses, right? So, of course, the cupbearer forgets, right? Gets out of prison, he's like, woohoo, I'm free, forgets how he got free, um, until Pharaoh starts having some dreams himself, and he can't interpret them. He doesn't understand what they mean. He calls in his magicians and his spiritual leaders, and nobody can really uh, decipher what they mean adequately to his, I guess, uh, approval, or to, to what he's like, no, this just isn't right, okay? And so, the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph, and he says, hey, there's this guy in prison that I met who told me everything that I ever needed to know, okay? And so calls him out of prison, and Joseph interprets the dreams to mean that there's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And Pharaoh's like, that's it. That's what it means. And so he takes Joseph and places him over all of Egypt except for himself. He's vice president now, from prison to vice president, right? Crazy, right? So, and he's set the task to prepare for the famine that's coming. So, um, and this famine, it did come. And it wasn't just in the land of Egypt. It was in the entire region, including the land of Canaan, where uh, Jacob and his other brothers were still living. Okay? So, Joseph's brothers, they, you know, they're starving. They're saying, hey, our food's getting depleted. They go to Egypt um, to get some food. Except they just one brother stays behind. That's Benjamin. That's the youngest brother now. And, man, uh, Jacob loves Benjamin, doesn't want his life to be risked on a journey to Egypt, so he stays back, okay? So Joseph's brothers go, and they deal with Joseph themselves, but they don't recognize him. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And Joseph throws them in prison because he suspects them of being uh, 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 spies. It's all fabricated. He knows who they are. But they say, you know, we have another brother back home, and he says, well, bring your other brother, I'm going to hang on to Simeon as collateral. You bring back your brother. So they go back home to Jacob. They're taking some grain that they bought. They realize, though, along the way, all the money that they brought with them is in their bags, and they're like, oh, no, what's going to happen to us? We're going to be thrown in prison. Joseph's going to think that we, or you know, the, guy was, uh, the guy that we dealt with is that we stole from him, right? And so they're worried. And so they go to Jacob, and they say, hey, we need to go back with Benjamin. And Jacob initially is like, no, you're not taking my youngest son. I already lost Joseph. I'm not going to lose Benjamin too, okay? So Judah, now Judah, just so you know, remember, he's the one who came up with the idea to make money off of Joseph, right? Also, Judah, he has some descendants down the road who are King David and Jesus, okay? Now, Joseph, now Judah, he also he steps up to the plate, and he says, he, he kind of realizes, hey, we're either dead here or we're dead there. You know, and he says, if anything happens to Benjamin, you can kill me. And Jacob says, okay. Um, and so, uh, no, not exactly. I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing there. 
Um, but he, Jacob lets, him go, lets Benjamin go with them at that point. But he does say something in Genesis 43, 14. This may be on the screen for you. You don't necessarily have to turn there. But it, uh, Jacob said, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Meaning Joseph. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. This is a prayer and this is something to be remembered later on. Okay? Um, they get Benjamin. They go back to Egypt with the original money and more money on top of that. And in the next encounter, Joseph tests his brothers. Um, and this is chapter 44. Okay, so we're getting close to 45, I promise. Um, I, uh, he tests his brothers again by having his own cup placed in the bag of Benjamin. Okay? And Benjamin, uh, whenever they, they, the guards come, they come chasing after them as they're leaving. They catch Benjamin with the cup, uh, Joseph's cup. And, they, and at that moment, Judah and Benjamin know that they're either dead men or they're going to be enslaved. One of the two. And so this is where we're going to pick up the story. The brothers are now in front of Joseph once again, okay? So let's look at Genesis 45. We're going to start in verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at segments of this passage a little bit at a time, and then we're going to uh, uh, have a little bit of discussion and wrap it up towards the end, okay? Um, So verses 1 and 2 of chapter 45 says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. So whenever I come to Scripture, I'm just going to tell you how I study Scripture and how I preach Scripture. I observe what's in the text, I interpret what's in the text, and then I apply what's in the text. Pretty simple concept, right? You observe, interpret, apply. And that's kind of what we're going to do. You're going to see some of them kind of fuse together a little bit today. But um, that's just for time's sake because it is a big story, okay? But what do we see here in this passage in verses 1 through 2? Joseph ugly cries. Joseph ugly cries, okay? Um, This is more than a drive around in the car and cry kind of cry. I've heard that's wonderful and, like, freeing whenever you do it. I think it's dangerous. My wife swears by it, but I think it's dangerous because, you know, you're driving around, you're crying, you could cause an accident. Um, If you do that, please drive safely, Um, wifey. Um, uh, But this is more than that, okay? This is more than a cry in front of the ocean kind of cry. Tears don't seem so big or cry in the shower so your tears just wash away kind of cry. This is not a poetic cry. Okay, it's not poetic at all. This is an ugly cry, and I'm sure it's full of snot and boogies flying everywhere. Okay, I mean, it's probably disgusting. There's other, there's other verses in this chapter that I, we're not going to read today, but it says that Joseph laid his head on the neck of Benjamin, and I can just imagine Benjamin's reaction being like, Ugh, you know, with all the snot and everything coming out. I'm just, that's how I imagine the scene, okay? So this is not a, a, a poetic cry. It's not a pretty cry. It's an ugly cry. But think of all the years. This is like 30 or so years from the time that Joseph was thrown into a pit to this moment of all of these emotions having been bottled up and now they're exploding. Of course it's going to be an ugly cry. It's the right kind of cry to have here in this moment. And, and, and just so you know, God meets us in those moments and we're going to see how this happens for Joseph. Okay? Um, but we see all this emotion being, having been bottled up, just exploding. Now, how do we know that this is an ugly cry? Well, Pharaoh and his household heard it, so which either means that um, he either lives in Pharaoh's home or next door to Pharaoh, which makes sense because he's Pharaoh's right-hand man. Um, but he sends like, his staff and his servants outside, the, outside of the room. So the only Egyptians that could hear it were going to be outside of the room, right? 
So, and like, and it would not have been culturally acceptable at this time for him to cry like this in front of his staff or his servants and so on. It would not have been acceptable because you're supposed to hold yourself, if you're a man in power at this time, you're supposed to not show this type of deep emotion in front of them. So um, they, he sends them out of the room so he can do this. So his brothers are left in the room with him. And his brothers get to see his pain and his anguish. They got to see the pain of rejection and the pain of separation. All those years of being rejected by your own brothers. Of being a separation, the distance, the time. Not only that, just there's you knew that the, there was no love there, right? This is deep pain. Now, just so you know, our God understands the pain of rejection and separation of his family too. Because at one point in time, every one of us in here have been, have rejected God in some way and have been separated from him at some point in time. He understands that. Let's look at verses three through four. It says, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Think about that. He didn't know if his dad was alive. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So Joseph tells his brothers who he is. All the games are done. He's not going to pull any more pranks on him, okay? It's just like a brother, though, to do that kind of thing, right? But he, he's not doing that anymore. His brothers here are afraid. And some translations, um, uh, uh, it even says that they're terrified. They, my version says dismayed. I hate that word there. I think it's a poor translation. It's they were terrified in this moment, in his presence. They, in that moment, their lives were in the very hands of the brother that they were going to kill, but instead sold into slavery. <laughs> I mean, the, the second most powerful man in Egypt they're standing in front of, he has the power of life and death over them. He could have gone to Pharaoh, and he could have said, hey, Pharaoh, I want all these guys' heads on a pike outside my front door by morning, and Pharaoh would have said, no problem. Okay, think about that. Okay, that's the kind of power Joseph held, and his brothers knew it, and they were shaking in their sandals. They didn't have boots, sorry. And I, I'm from Texas originally. I, I would have been better with boots. I, I get it. But, um, but he, he had power of life and death over them. So Joseph, the one who had been wronged. Now, if, let me go back to this verse. So, so uh, jo, verse 4 says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. Joseph, the one who had been wronged by them, now comforts the very men who hated him. Joseph is now comforting the very men who hate him. He doesn't push them away due to their silence or their fear. He doesn't push them away. No, he draws near to them. And this is so much like Christ. And it's a sermon for another time, Stephen. Um, but it is a detail I just can't read over quickly. You see, uh, when we are enemies of God, Jesus is the way for us to be near to God. See, Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The one who we wrong with our sin draws us close to him. The one who we wrong with our sin draws us close to him. And that fact alone, it makes me pause 
and worship our Savior. Because I've wronged him. I've gotten angry at my kids today and acted in a way I shouldn't have. I'm sure of it. I know it. It happens every day just about. But I, and I sin in my anger. But yet, I've wronged him, and he draws me in. He doesn't push me away. That's who our God is. Even though we're dead in our trespasses. Like if we were put, let's say God is in the place of Joseph and we are in the place of the brothers. We're standing before God. Guys, we're dead. We, we don't deserve mercy or grace, right? But yet he says, no, come close to me. I'm your God. Now let's look at verses five through eight. It says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So this is the heart of today's message and where we're going to camp out just for a little bit, okay? Joseph here says something of divine comfort and supernatural providence. Joseph said, for God sent me before you to preserve life. This is God actively keeping his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is him actively keeping his covenant. He's made promises to these men that he is going to make them a great nation, that they're going to outnumber the stars, right? And And Jacob's got 12 strapping young men to be able to do this with, to have the, you know, this great nation come from them, right? So, and now, like, their life is on the line, and God has made a way to save them. This is God actively keeping his covenant. In that sentence, Joseph shows how this truth about God was their saving grace. Remember when I quoted Jacob earlier in Genesis 43, 14? May, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Jacob says that? Well, we see that this prayer is answered, right? This, this request is answered by God. Joseph could have unleashed wrath upon his brothers, but instead he chose mercy. Again, so much like our Savior. Now, Joseph goes on to explain God's plan to them, and he says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, if I was one of those brothers, I think I would have been quite relieved at this moment, maybe even passing out from the sheer relief of all this, being all tensed up, knowing that my, day, my days might be numbered right here, right now, and then all of a sudden, there's mercy being given to me. I don't deserve it. So let's talk a little bit about sovereignty, okay? Sovereignty is the right of God to exercise his ruling power over his creation. Okay, it's the right of God to exercise his ruling power over his creation. Now, like, think about it as a, uh, in an earthly kingdom, okay? You have a king, he is a sovereign ruler, he rules over his domain. People who live in that domain get to live there because he, or he allows them, essentially, okay? If he walks up to somebody and says, I want this guy's, guy's head cut off, but... Guards do that, right? Like, you live, you exist because of him, OK? 
Okay? So think about it this way. God has the right to exercise his ruling power over his creation. He's God. He created it. He crowned himself king, as is his right. And so he, is, he has the, the, the right to do this. Um, also, there's a term here called providence. Now, providence is the foreseeing care and guidance of God over all the earth. Again, let me repeat that. The foreseeing care and guidance of God over all the earth. Just so you know, guys, I got these definitions not from a Bible dictionary, but from a secular one, okay, um, which I think is really cool. Um, but it's the foreseeing care and guidance of God over all the earth. Um, this story is a perfect example and proof of God's sovereignty and providence. Now, a lot of times when people talk about God's sovereignty, they kind of combine providence with it, and that's completely fine. That's just how we, how we do. We, we try to shorten things up, you know, especially like in the South where I grew up, we contract every word we can, okay? Um, I'm still trying to get the word y'all out of my vocabulary. It's just not happening, right? But we, can, we combine these two terms, and that's completely fine. So, but this is a great example of God's sovereignty and providence. So uh, we see him do this in the life of Joseph and his family. Uh, and uh, think of the road that Joseph went on one more time. Just think about the, Joseph, uh, the road that Joseph went on. There's no supernatural miracles really in this story. Okay, there's dreams, but there's no supernatural miracles. Um, and yes, in hindsight, we see the supernatural miracle that, that, that unfolded right, as an act of God. But for Joseph going through this in real time, these events being played out before him, he would not have known what was going on. Okay, in real time, he would not have known what the end conclusion was going to be. Okay, and think about this. What he had was dreams, a promise from God, and he held on to it. Now, he's thrown into a pit to be killed. He's sold into slavery. He's wrongfully imprisoned. He's forgotten about there's no blatantly obvious miracles. There's no seas parting. There's no pillars of fire. All that stuff comes later. But Joseph held on to the dreams that God had given him. And I'd forget my dreams within a couple hours on a good day. Okay? But these guys are living and dying by them. So, but when the moment comes, Joseph sees the fulfillment of the dreams God had given him. He realizes why he had to go to prison. Because he had to meet the cupbearer. He realizes why he had to be wrongfully accused and thrown into prison because he had to do that, right? He had to meet that person. He realizes why he had to be sold into slavery in the first place. We see how God provided for him to, to not be killed in that pit. We see, he sees it, he recognizes it because he held on to the promise that God had given him. So how do we see God work out his sovereignty and providence over our lives? That's a good question to ask, right? I'm glad you guys asked it. You ask, you're asking good questions. Keep it up. So I say most of the time it's similar to, to Joseph's experience through hardship. Through hardship. Guys, is starting a new church hard? Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> it's hard, okay? There's hardship, but whenever you go through this hardship and you hang on to the promises of God, you can see something beautiful if you're looking for it. If you're hanging on to it, you'll see it. Now, let me give you a more modern, well, kind of modern example um, of a person named Charles Spurgeon. He might be up on the screen here. I don't know if we got it up there or not. I haven't, I've been, haven't been paying attention. I apologize. There he is. That's Charles Spurgeon there. Um, Charles Spurgeon was a man well acquainted with trials and depression. The first time he preached, um, someone falsely yelled out, fire! And 
seven people were killed by the fleeing and stampeding people. And that weighed heavy on his heart through the rest of his life. Um, but he also suffered from several physical ailments, um, one of which that landed him outside the pulpit more times than he was in the pulpit. His wife was bedridden for decades. Okay, the guy was well acquainted with trials, but he also suffered greatly from depression. He wrote about it often. And, uh, and so Spurgeon knew depression firsthand as a result of his struggles. Now, in spite of this, he had, he had some accomplishments the, the first one I, I point out is that he preached to approximately 10 million people in his lifetime. 10 million people in the 1800s, okay? That's unheard of. He preached an average of 10 times per week. Stephen, you're, you're slacking, man. <laughs> I'm slacking too. I, I think once a month is difficult. Guys, once, a, once or twice a week is, is hard, but 10 times per week just seems exhausting. Um, his 3,561 sermons are bound in 63 volumes today. He also wrote several books. And one of his other greatest accomplishments is that he suffered. And why do I add this to his list of accomplishments? Great question. Because he does. He once said, I'm afraid, uh, I'm afraid that all the grace of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny but the good I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best book in a library. And how did Spurgeon come to this conclusion? Another great follow-up question. Good job. Um, it was God's sovereignty. See, he also once said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. The fact that God is reigning on his throne as king over your life, that allows you to rest. Remembering that through divine providence, he is orchestrating things that you don't know about. You don't see the end picture yet, but he knows it. He's already got it planned out. You can rest in his sovereignty. You can rest in the fact that he knows beginning to end. He knows everything in between. He knows what you're going through. He can empathize and sympathize with what you're going through. He's experienced hardships himself. We can know our suffering has a purpose. We can know our trials, our struggles, they all have a purpose. He so Spurgeon, he trusted in the power of God. He trusted in God's faithfulness. He trusted that God was actively exercising his power over his own life, and he rested in God's sovereignty and providence. People still read Spurgeon to this day and come to faith in Jesus. Okay, people uh, read of Spurgeon's struggles and depression and they find a kindred spirit and they say, it's okay to be messed up? It's okay to be depressed? Yeah, it is. I, I encourage you to seek support and help, yes, but it's okay. You're not alone. Other Christians have been there. It's okay to be a Christian and to have depression and to suffer. That's a little public service announcement there. That one's free. So how does this play out in our own lives? How does it play out in our own lives? And that's great questions, great questions. Whenever I come to Scripture, I ask questions. Okay, and I encourage you to do that too. I encourage you to ask questions of your pastor all the time. He loves them, okay? Um, but I encourage you of that. So we see God's sovereignty worked out, and I think four, I, I came up with four ways. There's more ways, but I came up with four. Um, I think they might be on the screen. But we see God's sovereignty worked out in our lives in hindsight, in hindsight. So this is the miraculous part, right? We get to see how God led us from point A to point B. Um, we see the big picture. We see the miracle it really was. 
okay, in hindsight. Um, we also see God's sovereignty worked out in our lives in the non-miraculous. So in the ordinary and mundane parts of life, in our trials and our tribulations and our, in the depression and the low points, we see God in those moments if we're looking for them. See, my, my, my grandfather in Texas, um, he recently wound up in the hospital with two brain bleeds and he's, he's going to be 96 at the end of the month. And so um, our he's been a, a, the patriarch of our family, a pillar in our family for many years. People are freaking out. And I, I'm living here now, and people are telling me all these stories. And I'm able to point out, hey, just so you know, this is God moving in this way. This is God moving in that way. Because I'm able to see it. I'm kind of removed. It. I'm able to. But we can see God work in the non-miraculous as well. We see God's sovereignty worked out in our lives. And where you are at this very moment hearing this very message about God's sovereignty and providence. I did not know that in the before times, whenever I met Stephen, that I would end up here today. Let me tell you the road that we, a brief story about how we wound up in the Pacific Northwest. See, I was going to plant a church about an hour north of Houston, Huntsville. Whenever I met him, he said, I'm going to go up to the Pacific Northwest. I said, this is the Houston Church Planning Network. What's going on here, man? You know, I was getting a little frustrated. It was taking up space, right? No, I'm just joking. I wasn't mad. I thought it was great. But, um, but uh, I, whenever we were, I was in this uh, residency, COVID hit, right, right towards the end. And, uh, and my wife, she's a physician, okay? And if you can imagine some of the horror stories surrounding the COVID situation and so on, um, we experienced all the horrid, horrible parts of it, okay? Um, my wife's clinic is a large clinic, and they've had regular security there for a while, but they had to get armed security at the door to require people to wear masks, because there were bomb threats, there were shooting threats, and all this stuff just because they're trying to help people, okay? We were getting pushed out. That was the beginning of it, okay? Our church, we had some issues with it. I was going to plan a church going out, and I love the church. They're a great church, but there were some issues. We had to separate from them. What was what were we were staying around for? My family lives a little over an hour away from us. We don't see them a whole lot. Why are we here? We began to ask that question. Where's God leading us? Where's he pushing us? It's really kind of how it felt. We looked at Vermont because I wanted snowstorms. I know, stupid, right? Um, but I wanted to experience it. Uh, but realizing living there year after year after year, it's probably not the best thing. Uh, but then we looked at the West Coast. We looked at Washington, Oregon, and California. And through, a, through practical decisions, that was really the, you know, God works in practical, practical decisions too, um, we wound up in Portland. And we have loved every minute of it. And I did not know that this was going to happen whenever I met Stephen. But through these trials that we were facing, and they were trials at times. We were, I mean, there were late nights where we were talking. I was listening to my wife cry. She doesn't cry with tears. She cries with her words. But, man, I, I was hearing this. And I was like, what do I need to do? God pushed us here. I did not know this is where we would be tonight. You have a story, too, of why you're sitting in your seat. I don't know what it is. I'd love to hear it. Um, I forgot to give you my email up here, but I would love to hear your story. I think it would be a great act or a great uh, a practice to write out your story about how you wound up here in this seat today. And if you like my email, I'd love, I'll give it to you guys. Um, but uh, we also see God's sovereignty worked out in our lives and our free will. Now, this is another one I'm going to just throw on Stephen here that you guys get to just ask him tons of questions about. But this is a, a long sermon for another time. But to Joseph's brothers, they didn't think that what they were doing was God's will. They knew what they were doing was evil, okay? But their, their evil wasn't God's will, but yet God used their free will to accomplish 
his will. I know, mind bomb there, but that's what it is. Um, and I encourage you to ask questions about that. Um, but he, God works out his sovereignty in our free will. Now, how are we supposed to live the, with this knowledge? What does God's sovereignty do for us? And, and these are great questions to ask. So let's look at verses 25 through 28, okay, of chapter 45. Genesis 45, verses 25 through 28. So Joseph's brothers are going back to Jacob. It says, so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt, and his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So like Jacob, when we hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can live with hope. We can live with hope. But what hope? See, John 14, literally what I did to find this verse, you can find many verses. I just literally flipped it open. This is John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus is talking here. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Our hope is in Jesus and his promise to us. Our hope is in Jesus and his promise to us. Because of his sinless life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and his promise that to come and bring us to himself again one day, we have hope. We have hope no matter how unmiraculous life gets, no matter how mundane life gets, no matter what trials or pain and suffering we go through, we have hope. Like Joseph had the promise of God in his, in his dreams, we have the promises of Jesus. We know that God is sovereign and working behind the scenes. He is, he is in charge of all of this. And because of his sovereignty, we can have hope in his promises. Because he is sovereign, because he is sitting on his throne, because he is ruling, because he is in control, we can have hope in his promises. God has not broken a promise yet, and he won't. He won't. So let me tell you something. Today, Jesus, like Joseph, is telling you to draw closer to him. You can trust him. He's not going to show you his wrath. He's going to show you mercy. He's going to show you love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing mercy to me, even though I don't deserve it. I deserve your wrath, but yet you, you are gracious to me. You give me the best thing of all your presence. And God, we ask that you would let us cling to your promise that you will bring us to yourself. God, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are ruling. God, that you are doing things that we can't see. 
And God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see those things. God, that we would live by the promises that you've given us, just like Joseph did. And we love you. In your mighty son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray.